0: For miles and we we've been having fun. Big nice to start and everything where we share the summer sun. But I've got a feeling out of you. I do. Yeah, it's like a ship is sinking into the first night on the cruise. I'll just play drinking games like we all cruise. James E the Bear. And their music at jamesytheband.bandcamp.com. Shout out to my cousin, Cole Hen, singer-songwriter, with the band, Jamesy. The shadows never last. to the broadcast. Time to take off the mask. Hello, I'm Charles, and you're listening to The Fool's Journey. Today I'll be speaking to you all by myself. As I recall the last two weeks of my life's existence. So I had planned for about three years now, a rendezvous with two of my closest friends. In fact, they are my brothers. The three of us are pen pals of sort, of of some sort, and we're all philosophers. My wife jokes that we're the oddest trio she's ever heard of. Stefan, who you know through the show, is an engineer. He, was, he is okay following rules. Justin, who you have not heard yet, but will be coming on the show, is a Mars energy, a very youthful, energetic rule breaker, a complete rebel with a cause. And I myself, I'm half and half. Sometimes I follow the rules. Sometimes I trample them. Well, these were the guys I went to go meet, along with 2,400 other souls who traveled from 70 different countries to meet in Rome for a mystical conference. When I arrived at Rome, hmm, let's back that up, before I had left for Rome, I was leaving on this Monday evening. And the Friday morning before that Monday, a Sabatian drove into me on purpose while I was making a left-hand turn. They came up from behind me, driving the wrong way into traffic and, and caused impact to my car. The maneuver was so well planned that it had looked like I was the guilty driver, that I had hit them and not the otherwise. There were three passengers in that car. The first passenger I encountered was the son, who wanted to fight with me. And only because I showed no fear did he n- did not strike me. The second passenger was an older woman, the wife of the driver, and the mother of the son. She was faking injury, claiming that she needed an ambulance, although the first responders shared with me that she didn't even have any bruises or lacerations from the seatbelt. My car ended up a write-off, and when the ins When the traffic investigator showed to the scene, and after hearing my story and seeing the evidence and then hearing the story of the other driver, he asked another officer to look for some video footage and told the two drivers, me being one, that none of our stories made sense to what the accident was proving to him, and then told me that I was going to be charged with the accident. I knew that the accident was not my fault, and I did a mystical prayer in that moment. What I prayed for was that, or visualized, is that there would be some video footage vindicating me. Showing that my driving was by the book, and that the accident was not my fault. Well, it seemed to me that some video footage had surfaced and that the investiga- the detective, the traffic detective, was looking at it. And I visualized again, because this was a time lapse of about six hours while the investigation, I was stuck at the side of the road. My whole day was shot. In fact, my whole weekend was shot and I couldn't do my last minute preparations for my trip. But as I... Visualized, meditated, prayed, whatever you want to call it, one last time. A white hawk flew around the scene of the accident, only about 12 feet above our, above the building, the one-story building of the plaza we, I was turning into when I was hit. And it spiraled up slowly, ever so slowly, in, an, in a shrinking spiral, upwards, above me and the scene. I took that as an auspici- auspicious sign that, yes, I was going to be vindicated, and within minutes, I was called over to the detective's police car where I was told I, had, I was not at fault and the other driver was going to be charged. It is my intuition that this accident was a planned attack somebody that knew traffic law knew the insurance claims and created a maneuver in order that his wife can now claim some sort of workers compensation and get an annual income of 30 to 50,000 a year this is a Sabbatean way of thinking you can look up who the Sabbateans are. I didn't even ever believe in the Sabbatean sect. I have Jewish relatives. I have Jewish friends. I love the Jewish faith, among other faiths. But there seems to be remnants of a historical sect of Jews which aim to redeem themselves through sin. Now I'm just going to leave that on the table for now. And let's get to Rome. So I have this stressful weekend before going to Rome. And I fly out to Rome. And Justin and Stefan are already in the city. They're awaiting my arrival. But I need to drop off my bags at the hotel and then make it back to the city. The hotel was slightly outside the city. On my way to the hotel... Or on my way out of the airport, I ran into a couple other friends that I n- had known and met in Toronto. We were all going to pool together for a taxi, and as I was trying to use my Italian skills, uh, linguistic skills in Italian, to, to help us with this, with this endeavor, I ended up getting separated from, from the original group from Toronto I had, I had just rendezvoused with. And met another woman from Toronto, who's a short, stout, um, Nigerian woman. And her hair, she wears it high up in a high top. And she has tattoos of a black tear under one eye, and tattoos of dark lines under the other eye. She's quite the sight. If you are a prejudiced person, you would feel prejudice. And fear when seeing her. But I don't. She's my sister. I know her. I've known her for years. And I observed that she had just struck a deal with the taxi. Instead of the 50 euros the taxi wanted to drive her to the hotel, she had struck a deal for 30 euros. And then I asked her if it was okay if I got the other group, but the other group was reluctant to come and they didn't get in get in there in time and the taxi literally started driving off with my suitcase in it and I had to jump in the car. And then he and then I opened the door and he stopped driving and there was a little bit of a showdown between me and the taxi because I wanted the other people in the group to share the ride. And he had felt flustered. He must have felt flustered that this very unruly looking woman had struck a deal with him and now he was having to wait. And if more people were entering his cab, he definitely wanted more money. Well, we drove off, just the two of us. And we shared the half-hour taxi drive, talking about our excitement for the mystical convention we were about to enjoy. That was, that was my sister Magdalene and myself. Now, what Magdalene did was noteworthy and very, very humbling indeed. Especially for the taxi driver. Because when we stopped at the hotel, I knew that she had negotiated the fare to $30 or I should say euros. Every time I say dollars, I mean euros now. I may call them dollars by mistake. But you know what I mean because I've just said it. So I pulled out 20 euros in cash and I gave it to Magdalene to give to the driver. Magdalene said, yes, yes, 20 euros is good, 20 euros. And then I saw her take out 50 euros and add it to my 20 and give it to the driver, meaning that the driver had just been tipped 40 euros after he had driven half an hour thinking he was only getting 30. He ended up getting 70. And I remember the cab driver's look on his face. He called Magdalene, who he was treating kind of subpar. He had prejudice against her. That was obvious at the beginning of the trip. But she must have sensed this, my mystical sister. And it was worth 50 euros to her to change this man's mind about judging a book by its cover. This man was so grateful, stunned. And shocked, and and actually thanked Magdalene profusely for the extra money. It was a great way to start my mystical convention. <coughs> but this, I'm not on, only going to be mystical here. I'm going to be political, because. Not politically charged in any which way. I'm just going to report what I experienced. So I leave the hotel after checking in, etc. And I make my way to the Trevi Fountain where I'm going to rendezvous with Stefan and Justin. Which we do. We, We rendezvous around the Trevi Fountain and we walk a little bit and end up at the Pantheon. Because Rome, like I said, is an ancient and antique city. And you could literally walk three blocks and find yourself in an antique or ancient monument or square. So we sat directly across from the Pantheon in a restoría and enjoyed some wine. And I had a salad because I was hungry and I think Justin ordered some fruit. But we began to talk, as we do, about life, about mysticism, about philosophy, about the sciences and the arts, and about the state of humanity. Well, our Italian waiters must have been eavesdropping. Or they just might have not given a damn. But as we were preparing to pay and leave, we asked if the Pantheon had any cover fee to enjoy uh, entering it. And our Italian waiter said to us, No, the Pantheon is free. Everything in Italy is free for the visitors. Everything in Italy is for the visitors. If you want to come to Italy and start a company. You will pay no taxes for three years. If someone wants to come from Sri Lanka, they can start a company for three years. But us Italians, we end up... If I want to start a company, we end up like this. And he crossed his hands over his chest and crossed his arms, forearms over his chest and used his hands to... Mimic strangulation. It said everything in, Itali- in Italy is for the visitors. But we are strangling here. Now, I really was used to this kind of body language. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood. Uh, we can get passionate. We can. But Justin and, and Stefan did not grow up in an Italian neighborhood. And they were taken aghast by this. And I told them, listen, guys, he's telling us the truth. Um, And he doesn't really care who knows it. There were many reports from other people we met at the convention that the Italians were doing poorly. Yes, indeed. Now, Justin had the fun idea or motive that he wanted to uncover the archives of the Vatican. And throughout the trip, he kept asking people if, it, if they thought, like our taxis, et cetera, if they thought that we would be able to storm the archives, somehow get in there under false pretense, et cetera. And Justin also put the idea out there that maybe perhaps the masses one day would storm the archives. Because what's inside those archives historic to humanity not just Christianity and definitely not just the Roman Catholic Church and also most of what's in that archive and most the wealth acquired by the Catholic Church was done through war and conquer now I'm not here to slander the Catholic Church My mother and my mother's mother are Catholic. My daughter is Catholic. I happen to be Anglican, being the firstborn son of the firstborn son of the firstborn son of an English bloodline. But what I will say about religions is that, to me, they're arbitrary. Spirituality is a human experience and cannot be governed between one man and another. And my friend Justin does does agree with this, but takes it a little further than I tend to, than I want to. And and he would like to see organizations which are responsible for much oppression to be disbanded. Uh, Disbanded. So this became a theme. And one night, we took a taxi. Uh, He actually was an unlicensed taxi. He uh, He called himself Uber, although Uber was not really prevalent in Italy. He could have been an Uber driver, but we didn't really care. He was a nice guy. We made a deal over some euros to get back to the hotel. And we asked him if he thought that we would be able to get into the Vatican archives. And he giggled and laughed at the idea because he liked the idea. When we told him we, we were under the guise that we weren't dogmatic Catholics and we, we were willing to challenge some of the um, power holds of the Catholic Church or any religion, he confided in us and actually got visually agitated and said the people in the Vatican are bad people, you understand me? They are very bad people. I said, well, give me some examples, please. And he said, when I was younger, I wanted to play the violin. And I didn't have a place for me to practice and study the violin. So I went to a church and asked the priest if I could use a room that was empty for most of the week to practice the violin. And the priest told they wanted money. And this was not just one church. It was many, many churches. He went to many churches because the churches were supposed to be for the people, for the arts, and for the culture. So why not allow a youth to practice violin? But they did not. They wanted money that he didn't have. And that was his story. That was in his journey when he started to condemn the Catholic Church. And then, and then he also said that in the Vatican, they're so corrupt, they're like a mafia. And you can't really have a job in Rome unless you know somebody in the Vatican. But if you know somebody, if you have a family in the Vatican, family member, with one phone call, five minutes, you have a job. Now, these are Matteo's words. These are not my words. But I'm reporting them. Because I wonder what you would think about that. So let's see, what else happened? It was actually um, before that night. Um, we went to Trastevere and the River Tiber, which is a very lively spot to visit. Along the river, there's lots of tiendas, or tents, set up, as well as some little restaurants, resterias, and. Uh, like fair games and a couple boutique shops. And we walked along. Oh, there were also jetone or foosball tables, table soccer. It was really nice. Music, people. And by the way, it was extremely hot in the summertime. And the Roman women, as well as the Roman men, Take pride in keeping themselves beautiful and making them and presenting their best when they go out on the town. That seems to be an Italian cultural thing, even a romance or lat or a Latin culture thing, because my wife, being Mexican, will not leave the house in pajamas. Like me, the slob American would. <laughs> and. Maybe you're not a slobby American. I'm not judging based on your ethnic origin, but we can say and we can report and observe different things in our cultures. But we were also with uh, our sister, Crystal. And Crystal, I sense, I just met her on the trip, but I spent many meals with her. And we had, she was part of our group uh, the three of us and Crystal, she was often with us on our adventures. Um, we saw live performances on the street. We saw the crowd boo as the Carbonari came and shut down the show at 11 o'clock. Although they had mercy. Yes, they did. They, they let the performers play one more song. And then we walked, uh, the four of us, uh, down some steps and along the River Tiber. And I ended up. I was trying to. While we were watching the music and stuff, I'm not a wine drinker. We just kept drinking wine. Actually, in Rome, you are allowed. uh, As as far as we experienced, you're allowed to drink wine in plastic cups as long as your bottle. You're allowed to drink alcohol in plastic cups as long as your bottle is in a bag. So we brown bagged some wine and had some cups and and. And then we wanted to stop at a restaurant for some more wine because we had run out. And we're on the River Tiber, and before the restaurant, I see a marijuana store. Now, here's the interesting thing. Marijuana, I think, is decriminalized to the point where you're allowed to smoke it, and you're allowed to carry some of it. Um, I think mar- cannabis, with a THC level of point five or lower percent is legal, although you cannot sell it for human consumption. So I found this little shop that was selling uh, CBD flour, basically, cannabis flour. And the guy was kind enough, even though he was breaking rules, he allowed me to roll a joint using his rolling papers. Um... And he gave me a lighter, and he let me basically roll a joint as a Canadian in his behind the counter in his shop. And then I took it over to a restaurant, and Justin and I shared a CBD joint. Now, the interesting thing was that the waiters were incredibly excited that we were about to do that. They loved the idea of CBD and wine out on the town. Okay? Now, there were two couples... Uh, sitting beside us, and when I first sat down, the ladies smiled at me uh, here 's another thing when i 'm outside of North America, which is very superficial uh, as a, of a culture, very intense and plastic and competitive and capitalistic okay and and these can be good things too. So don't get insulted, my fellow Americans. Um, North Americans, I mean. But when I'm outside of our culture, my good looks just go so much further. I I tend to be treated like a really good-looking person. When I'm in North America, it's weird, I tend to be treated like, I don't know, between a 5 and a 7 out of 10. And when I'm in Europe or... Latin America, I'm like a 7 to 10 out of 10 is how I'm being treated. But anyhow, so the women originally smile at me, but then I light up the joint and they call over the waiter and they say, hey, why are you letting him smoke that here? And he said, well, he bought it over over next door. It's just CBD. It's allowed. And they said, okay, well, it really smells. They said something like that. Now, she could have been trying to rap me out, or she could have been warning him to warn me about the cabernet. Either way, I was unharmed, unscathed, allowed, completely allowed with a few, a few enthusiasts. Now, there were a few in my group, Crystal and Stefan, who don't smoke. And Justin doesn't smoke either. He actually complained that the CBD was so much harsher than California weed he's from LA and I imagine he's right I, I didn't really notice because I'm a, I'm a pothead um, but I, I apologized to Stefan and I apologized to Crystal for the smoke and I asked them if they had ever you know what, what their thoughts were and Crystal said she doesn't really have any other problems with it other than the fact that you're inhaling smoke into your lungs so I shared with Crystal And I'll share it with you because it's kind of interesting. I said to her, Crystal, I agree with you 100%. And it was always a struggle between my love for cannabis and and as a medicine and as a meditative tool, et cetera, et cetera. And this, this worrying, sublime respect for my lungs and breath. And I said, but I sat down one day about 10 years ago and I finally ended the discussion, the internal dialogue I was having over the matter. And I said, I'm going to continue smoking as long as this human rights issue is not being addressed. Because in my lifetime I had seen equality among races, equality among religions, Equality among the sexes. Equality among the sexual preferences. And yet people were being slammed in prison for marijuana. A plant that God created that has over a thousand uses for humanity. Textiles, fuels, medicines. This is silly. It's a food as well, a protein-based uh, plant. It's, it's just amazing. It really is. And Crystal is kind of fun and goofy, and she laughed. And she said, well, how's that going for you? And you know, what I had to admit to her, I had to be candid, and I said, pretty darn good. It's only been 10 years, and in my country, Canada, marijuana is legal. And here I am today with you in Rome, smoking in the streets, in public, without getting arrested. And then Justin, because he mentioned that everybody was smoking tobacco, and that was much grosser in reality. As Justin really is a human rights activist. Uh, we're going to mention Justin is from um, uh, Hustle for Humanity. Um, they are promoting um, the Declaration of Human Rights as a, as a way of life and as a law. They're promoting meritocracy. They're trying to they, they've, they've helped uh, fund schooling, as well as poverty people. Um, I'm kind of on the board, but we're still we're still growing, and Justin is really getting his hustle on um when he gets a few more pieces of the puzzle in play, um, we may have a, we may have a cool store selling some uh, philosophical items like Phrygian caps and um, black pa- pamphlets of the human rights as well as membership cards with deals and um, lots of stores and restaurants and outlets. So there's the plug for Justin, but so we talked a little bit about the human rights, but that was another night. And uh, earlier that day, we had visited a uh, really beautiful, um, uh, a really beautiful square called the Piazza de Maria Sopra Minerva. and we also uh, visited. Now that was a place where they publicly humiliated uh, a great mind, Um, Michael Molinos, who wrote uh, a book that um, was decreed heresy after had been um, uh, promoted by Jesuits. It was later when he he gained power and it looked like it could threaten the Jesuit power. He was later condemned and uh, was imprisoned in his cell, although he submitted Um, that happened there. And the cell he was taken to was near the Colosseum in a, in a church um, where I believe St. Peter died or where, he, where he St. Peter, something to do with St. Peter. Um, we also found this uh, ancient Knights Templar um, or antique Knights Templar church where uh, Pope Innocent is buried. And Pope Innocent, was actually good friends with Michael Mullineaux. Um and then later had to kind of give in because he was um, he was actually under question of of heresy because of his close relationship with Michael. Um, and right across, we had some wine um, that day uh, right w- right across from um, that church where Pope Innocent is. Is buried, which had all kinds of Knights Templar and mystical symbology. It had uh, Hermes, Sophia, uh, on, on in the East, uh, as well as um, you know signs of dualism and uh, and the serpent uh, of knowledge and all kinds of things in this beautiful church. And across from it. Was the building number thirteen where we ate, and it was the Sabatini Cafe, and it had a red crest. Now, remember, I talked about the Sabbatean sects of Jews. Well, um, there's there's this talk of this sect, um, which was up to basically um, redemption through sin. They would have festivals like the dimming of the lights. You could look up Robert Sefer on YouTube. I don't know Robert. Uh, Robert, if you ever hear of me, reach out. You could come on the show. We could have an interesting talk uh, about the Atlanteans. Um, Robert also has a channel, Atlantean Gardens, so there's a free plug. Um, check him out. Um, he's an anthropologist, and, and that's where I learned about the Sabbatean Jews. And I'm not trying to villainize Jews, but it's interesting that there's this, like right there was evidence for me. Sabbatini means Sabbatean plural, in Italian. And they had a lion for the crest, and it was a red crest, and the it was a building number 13, and ironically it was across f- of the square of this uh, ancient Templar building where Pope Innocent was buried. So, Pope Innocent was kind of a Renaissance Pope, if he was friends with Michael Molinos, and that uh, temple um, was a Renaissance temple. I definitely picked up on a good vibration when I entered the building, and was touching the marble and the granite and the limestone, whatever was in there, um, and the woods. It was it was beautiful, um, and there was uh, the ceilings were painted, etc. It was it was a magnificent building, and right across this Renaissance building is this uh, cafe and uh, winery of uh, Sabatini. And 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 on the c- on the side of the building of the Sabatini building was uh, a a mural, two pictures by an artist. One was a, an old Italian lady with a Superman vest and all kinds of crazy shit tattooed on her. Um, and then another one was a Roman woman holding a skull in her hand, uh, a bloody skull. So. It was interesting, the imagery of the good and the evil and the dualistic of reality. So let's just think about that sometimes. Um, and, you know, I was a victim of the Sabatini, if, I'm, if my theory is correct. If we want to go into the imagination realm, then the people that hit me, they did it on purpose so that they could break laws and, and live unruly lives because redemption through sin. And then I become a victim, although I was redeemed by camera footage. And then here I am in this beautiful Renaissance building and go eat. And then I notice that I'm in the building number 13, Sabatini, with the uh, uh, old uh, gangster nonna and the uh, woman with a bloody skull painted on the side of the building. I mean, it's just bizarre. And it's fun fruit for thought that's all this is on the fool's journey. So don't take it too seriously. On the town, um, I thought that was an interesting story. What other things occurred that were fun and interesting? Mm, The lunch. We should get to the lunch. We we could call this segment the lunch fiasco. Yeah, because it was. And uh, in retrospect, I wonder... I wonder if we were um, subjects of a social experiment. I really do. A sort of aptitude test from the people who put on the conference to the people who attended. So here's what happened. There's 2,400 people all in the Marriott Park. And we all fit in one big room where we're giving lectures and doing group meditations, having musical performances, really raising our vibration as a group, really, really calming the souls. And then we're all, because we're we've paid for the convention, we're all uh, promised lunch. It was part of the deal. The package was lunch and breakfast every day for six days. So on the first day, the first lunch, we cross a threshold hall, which is the lobby hall. And in the lobby hall, there was a big, huge bar. There were lots of couches. There was enough room for for all 2,000 of us, as well as a restaurant over back back in the east. And and then we cross, and, and we're going to this other hall across the lobby hall, One was called the Michelangelo, that's where we're coming from, and one's the Taisano. And we're going into the Taisano, although, oops, doors are locked. So they create a funnel. And now the 2,400 people are starting to kind of congregate around the door. And they open the door. What happens is a stampede for food. Now, it's a buffet. There's 12 to 20 tables all set out equally. And there is truly enough food for all of us. And yet, what I witnessed was madness. Most of the people, I'd say 95% of them, were pushing for food, were shoving for food, were elbowing for food, were stealing the spoon out from people's hands to gather food, we're taking the last scoop. Uh, we're stealing food off of people's plates. And I, I was sitting there with my plate, and I, I first made the joke like, uh, "Am I supposed to start doing some martial arts right now? Like, get get in there with my elbows?" And then <laughs> and and Justin. Little wiser in this situation. Stefan also. Stefan just didn't say anything. Stefan said, "Charles, just let's let's wait. Let's see. Let's let's watch this." He said, "Let's watch this." (laughs) And I'm standing around, and I'm like, "Well, I see it, and I don't like it, and I'm getting angry." And he says, "Just stay. Just hang on. Hang on. Just just stay." And Stefan is still actually trying, he and Stefan are still trying to get food. But I've stopped trying at this point. I am now weighing out my options of the stress involved in getting this food or the 10 euros it will cost me to go have the lunch buffet at the restaurant. And I tell them, let's just go to the restaurant. And it seems like Stefan doesn't really want to pay when he's already paid for the meal. And Justin may have been of that as well. But he's not saying that. He's saying, let's stay and watch. That's important that he said that. But I eventually got so upset. After he said that to me twice, I I listened twice. But I eventually gave up. And I said, I'm going to the restaurant. And I walked out with my plate. And I was so, I started to fester. And As I'm festering, I'm thinking, I should just crack the... I get into a clearing. The stampede is all around the tables. I get to a clearing between tables on the way out where there's no stampede. And I'm thinking, I have this plate. I should smash it on the floor and yell at everybody and reprimand them. But then a higher vibration comes in and says, no, no, no. That will antagonize the situation. You will look foolish in the end you would be acting foolishly in the end. And so in my last little, I said, I need an outlet for my anger, and I threw the plate into a garbage. And maybe five people saw that act, and I walked out. And I went, and I very angrily stood in the lineup to get to the restaurant. But I waited in line, and there was a couple people that came out of the Tizano stampede for food and came and butted in front of me to get into the restaurant. I mean, they were willing to pay. They just weren't willing to wait. And then Stefan and and Justin came to the restaurant a little bit after. I I had already been seated. They came in and sat with me. Justin and I ordered some food. Stefan was happy with the scraps he was able to get uh, in the riot. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he had basically waited long enough that the masses calmed down enough that he was able to put some food on his plate. It wasn't much, but I think he was just also thinking from a frugal standpoint, and we were all in shock of what we'd seen, except for Justin, who who said to me, Charles, you had to see that. even though we're here doing this higher learning, doing this raising vibration and calming and tranquil event, a little panic over food and 95% of the people turn into asses. That was so wise. And and I'm thinking to myself, fuck, he's right. And then he goes further to say no matter what crowd I'm in, I usually discover that only about 5%, that's my number, it's, it's a guess, he says, but 5% are actually illuminated, and the rest are just followers ready to stampede at any moment. So later that afternoon, we went back to meditating and stuff, and I... I I just wasn't there. I wasn't present. I was festering. I was angry at everybody. Why, why did you ruin my lunch? Why did we ruin each other's lunches like this? I mean, in the end, I was able to get a good lunch and relax and, and actually was told something quite insightful over my meal. And <laughs> the other thing is when <laughs> I was one of the first to leave the stampede so when Justin mentioned the 5% uh, figure, I pointed to the line of people coming to the restaurant and said, here's your 5%. The rest of the 2000, it was about 100 to 200 people that came to the restaurant of the 2,400. So pretty good, pretty good number, 5%, I'd say. Now on the second day, the second lunch, the three of us skipped the whole morning of the conference and spent the morning in the pool it was a beautiful pool and we kind of were from my point of view i was fed up with the crowd after that stampede and then we uh we decided oh it's 12:30 like the stampede happened at 12 let's go check out the lunch scene and see if we could get some food and we got some food nobody was really around we got some food i was I'm celiac, there was gluten-free pasta, I haven't had pasta since my childhood, like good Italian nonna pasta, and I had some nonna pasta, but it was gluten-free, thank you Roma. And uh, so we assumed that the problem had been rectified, because also during the conference, you know, there was... There were things mentioned about, hey, let's try to... uh, We're raising our vibration. Let's try not to push. (laughs) Let's try to be considerate. There were a couple reminders uh, from the conference leaders. And on the third day, it seemed seemed contrived because we had the same spread of 12 to 20 tables, all made up the same with a buffet. And I was one of the first... We three were the f- one of the f- some of the first hundred people into the, that moved from one hall to the next. We were sitting on the outskirts of the, of the first conference room, so we got out quickly and crossed over. And we would have been first in line on an empty table, but there were staffers there blocking us and said, "No, you have to go to the two tables on the end." So then, at first, we we follow the staffers' directions and we find ourselves, now looking at two tables of people fighting for food, about 200 people. So the people we came in with and now a new crowd of people were all being funneled to two tables whilst there was all these other tables with food there. Just they weren't allowed. So we went to the far corner that was empty. And we, we started a line. People were rushing in. There's 2,400 people Within minutes, they were in that room. And now I'm in the front of a lineup on an empty table with two staffers telling us we cannot eat. And I say, why? We're all here, lined up, ready to eat. And then there's a guy in charge of all the staffers who's like, no, hold firm. It was like a military operation. It was so weird that they did this. Either... The Marriott really has shitty service in banquets? Or this was some sort of social experiment. And, okay, social experiment, were there any victims? I'd say no. Everybody who wanted to wait for food could, could have got food. Although the crowd got a little bit unruly and rude. And they were about to get rude in this uh, third lunch, But I I actually reasoned with the two staffers blocking our table and got them to break their orders and their chain of command and allow us to start eating. It was a small victory. I basically, like, I was submitting to them, but I kept questioning their reasoning. And eventually, they went with logic over absurdity. And yet, a woman an older woman started pushing me. And I said, oh, please don't push. And she responded, I'm not pushing. I said, yes, you just pushed me. And then I was quiet. And then she pushed me again. And I said, that, that was a push. Please don't push me. And then she said, I didn't push you. People are pushing me. She was full of excuses, obviously, but then she had already pushed enough that she had food on her plate, and she said, can I go in front of you guys, since I already have my meat, just to get my salad, and I said, well, that doesn't make sense, because then we will have to wait to get our food, just so that you could get your food first, and she said, well, I have my meat, so that means I was in the line, respecting the line, and then she went around us and butted us in line, cut in the line and took her greens. I mean, this was the behavior of some of the masses who became asses over the fear of waiting for food or the fear of getting food. They didn't trust the people that put on the conference. They didn't trust the hotel. They're full of fear. And that second lunch was it was just like the. The last nail in the coffin for me, it was the the awakening I needed. And I realized something, guys, and I'm going to share it with you. I didn't act like an ass. I'm an independent thinker. And I'm quite proud of that. And I would encourage you all to trust yourselves enough To be independent thinkers. And yeah, that's a powerful message. And yeah, many humans have been killed by the powers that be. Because that message takes all the power away from the powers that be. To know for every individual in the masses to know that they are worthy. That they do not need the infrastructure. It could mean certain parts of the infrastructure vanish. And people who are parts of those parts of the infrastructure don't want that. Like Matteo said, the Vatican is a very bad people. And he got upset and agitated. I'm not saying the Vatican's bad people. Not nowadays. Anyways, I'm not sure. I mean, it is strange that things are under lock and key. And I will also report that most of the monuments in Rome, including the Vatican, were under uh, armed guard, meaning like automatic weapons and military personnel. There's a picture of me out there uh, eating my dinner in the, uh, what's it called, the Piazza dei Fiori, the Square of Flowers, where they burnt Giordano Bruno for understanding math and astronomy, they burnt him alive because he was challenging their infrastructure. And I ate in that square with a number of higher-minded individuals, and right behind me were two very well-armed military personnel. It didn't bother me because I'm desensitized. I am a warrior, but it bothered the woman who I ate dinner across of. She mentioned it a few times that it was freaking her out that we had armed guards beside our meal, and I made the joke. Well, <coughs> this is Italy, and one and being uh, acquainted with the uh, Mexican military patrol. Um, the Mexican guns look all scuffed up like they're being used. At least these Italian guns are super, super shiny like they've never been shot. Like they've never been used. So, I mean, I did actually notice that and I did actually find that reassuring. It didn't look in Mexico when you roll up in a checkpoint and there's guys with guns, it's a little scary. You don't know whether these guys are even real officers or not. There's a lot of corruption and there's a lot of danger. And you could just get, like, black... Uh, you could get, uh, what's it called, framed for a crime if they don't like you. They got guns and your car is at a checkpoint. In Italy, it was much more mellow. The guns were off in the corner to the side. The military personnel were polite and friendly... And like I say, the guns were shiny like they'd never been used. Not in battle, at least. (sighs) And then there was Justin and the Phrygian caps. The Phrygian caps are a red cap similar to what the Smurfs would wear. In fact, Papa Smurf wore a Phrygian cap You can look up Papa Smurf and know exactly what kind of hat we're talking about here. Now, that hat, according to Justin, well, I'm pretty sure it's accurate. That hat um, was given to the Roman slaves when they were freed as a symbol of their freedom. And because the hat was an ancient symbol of freedom... Many revolutionaries around the world, including the famous French revolutionaries, the Jacobites, wore those Phrygian hats. According to Justin's intelligence, the Phrygian cap, Phrygian, means free man. Also, according to some historians, the Phrygian caps worn by the French revolutionaries said freedom or death. Another group of words for the Phrygian Hats were freedom, fraternity, equality, or death. And the, free and the, and the American revolutionaries also use this symbol. It's on many seals, like um, military seals and government seals for different uh, government bodies in the USA and around the world. Many seals contain the Phrygian cap. So, Justin, my very active, youthful friend and brother, had three of these caps made for the three of us to travel around and roam in Rome. And we wore them to the Vatican. And we put them on in Vatican Square and we took pictures. And I noticed some Italians swearing at us. The irony was we were wearing the Phrygian caps in the Vatican Square because it is s- part of the Vatican's actions that are known to people that we're not equal to them. There is no equality. The fraternity is within themselves. There is no fraternity with everybody. So, and there is no free thinking, there's dogma. So interesting that some Italians there to visit the Vatican were getting angry at us for wearing a hat that symbolized nothing more than freedom, fraternity, and equality. And then we went into the Vatican Museum and the Sistine Chapel, and we wore our Phrygian caps here and there when we were in the Egyptian exhibit and when we were in the Sistine Chapel, and we took pictures. and The the picture I'm proudest of, because, well, she's the coolest goddess I know of, Sekhmet, um, or, or, or Bridget in Celtic terms, the Lion Hades, Calf Hades, the Triple Hades goddess of fertility, of war, of freedom, of fairness, of equality. It was a giant black onyx statue of, of her in her lion form with her boobies. And I took a picture prete- with the Phrygian cap pretending to suckle her breast. I mean, uh, listen, I may have committed heresy just there, but um, I don't subscribe to dogma, so therefore there is no heresy in my world. And I asked the person that took the photo. He was a bit of a scholar. I asked him, do you think that was in poor taste that I pretended to suckle her nipple? And he said, no, that's exactly what she represented to the Egyptians. She would have loved that. She's an archetype of human consciousness. And you're just just being silly and playing in the role. I said, thank you, because that's exactly what i intended and i think that's that's all for rome i think uh, a couple just to wrap up what i kind of learned was a how to lower my frequency meaning lower not meaning higher but actually calmer you know fear is erratic and anxious and uh, no no more of that i really kind of consummated myself as a secure individual and i did learn as justin said you needed to see that that i'm not always going to be among like-minded people a- and 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 I have to learn to live among the masses who can live like asses. And it's different because culture hides a lot of this. Culture hides a lot of our individual individuality. So when you're walking in the streets of a city, especially like Canada, and everybody's culturally polite, you're not expecting them to stampede. And now that was the last point I'll just say. Um, I'll just throw it out there. Stefan reminded me that in some of the cultures, we had 70 different countries, they don't have the concept of a lineup. And that made me forgive the, the masses a lot more. It was like, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I could see that. I could I could see, you know, not really understanding that not really feeling shamed or bad in that behavior versus my judgment of it. And when I realized that I had this cultural difference that made me judge other people's actions from a different culture, my mind immediately imagined the old uh, world whites, old world Europeans that went to other lands and considered those people savages. And I felt bad about that. I mean, I understood for the first time in my life, I understood that type of racism. I understood all, that, all the hatred and, and fear. And, and um, I, I understood it. I never understood it before because I sensed it was wrong. I still know it's wrong. But I understood it for the first time in a way that made sense to me because a lot of racism is illogical, but that would have been a logical onset of racist and prejudice, And so I, I'm kind of in this internalization of understanding that w- we're all flawed, including myself, but that we're at a time in the world where we could really lose control here as a populace as a race, as a species, I wonder sometime, am I safe in my quiet little town in the quiet little marsh, where I have an abundance of vegetation and life, if the rest of the world was at a civil unrest, would it eventually spill into my quiet sanctuary? Or the reverse, would I become active in revolution and therefore have no use of sanctuary except for my quarters and in my body? There was a lot of predictions about the civil unrest, which is why I started about the Italians being strangulated by their government and law. And also the Vatican, and Matteo's concerned that they're bad people and corrupted and power hungry. Money and power, he said. And what of us in our culture? Are we becoming too greedy and selfish and fearful? Can we save our culture? Can we increase our culture's understanding of equality, freedom, and brotherhood? fraternity, sisterhood. Can we make these ideas our culture? I think we can, and it has happened. Hence all the seals and all the governments that were created 200 years ago after the French and American revolutions. But it seems that the powers, the old world powers, have figured out ways of densifying and dullifying The masses. And that's kind of a warning. The warning would be that we need to um, regulate ourselves. I think we need to be aware of the fact that our senses are malleable and fallible meaning that they're so flawed that we can be mis we can misunderstand our senses and have a misrepresented sense of reality and they're malleable in such that they're so mechanical that outside sources can influence how we perceive reality and let's talk about the conference a little bit there was there was a lecturer who spoke about that who spoke about virtual reality and the senses and how easily misled they are and the mechanics of the senses and how there are specific sciences relating to such and um, so I just want to say we were meditating in the conference and we were intoning and having musical performances. And basically, it seems as though my frequency was raised, my atonement. I, I'm much calmer this next week. And I'm back at home in the hustle and bustle. And I have more things to deal with than I'd prefer to deal with. But I prepared myself for this. I pre- prepared myself for a shock to the system, Um, and that was what another lecturer pointed out, is that we should visualize things not going the way we want them, and still being happy, and still being calm, and still being true to who we are, which eventually takes us to where we want to go. So it was a more sophisticated, positive visualization that included a threat of negativity in preparation for reality. Because reality is turbulent. Much more turbulent than profound peace would be. (laughs) And I want to report that when I walked around Rome with this... uh, kind of raised vibration, I was able to sense frequencies. So what I mean by that is um, it's been many years, and thanks to Kung Fu and Tai Chi, I've been able to feel the magnetism between my left and right hand. Um, Through yogic practices of scanning the body, I'm able to sense minute sensations within myself. even. Occasionally, I could sense myself on a cellular level. And these are things that I had to train myself. I I wasn't... I didn't... As a teenager on, or as long as my living memory is, I don't remember having these capabilities just naturally. They were things that, as a young adult and as an adult, I, through dedication, practiced, and exercised, and created these capabilities. So therefore, all of us can do the same. All right? That's to just kind of um, get rid of the, some of the stigmas of psychic phenomena. Because let's face it, the, the CIA, the governments of the world are are, un, are trying to understand parapsychology and things like this. The Russians. Um, Because they, they hold some truth and some science. And my understanding would be that since everything is frequency, since everything is vibration, then everything is frequency. And thought and consciousness are also frequency. And therefore, there's this interaction between material frequency and ethereal frequencies. And this is where we experience... Uh, prophetic visions and ideas. We have raised senses, seeing things, clairvoyant, clairaudient, hearing things. This is what, this is what all that, is to me, to my understanding. And I'm a, I'm an electrician, so I understand frequencies. I understand trigonometry and, and calculus, etc. Understand physics, so this actually makes perfect sense to me. Um. And, you know, I think also <laughs> I've had some experiences where I've, I've seen little things. Like, uh, I see, you could see, um, one time I saw a cat in a house that I didn't know there was a cat. but The cat was locked away, but I saw the cat jump from the counter down to the floor. <coughs> Out the side of my eye, it was kind of an ethereal vision. And I wasn't sure if I saw anything, so I asked, is there a cat? And they said, Oh, it's uh yeah, it's locked up in the bathroom because we're having guests over and they don't like guests. But I was already doing a whole bunch of Tai Chi and Kung Fu um with a ver- with an actual uh Qi Kung healer's son. So there was a lot of energy I was kind of getting used to feeling. And uh I thought I thought then that what I could be picking up is um, in the space time continuum of uh, the illusory space and time continuum, which only exists with my perspective or the individual's perspective um, perhaps within that there's energy fossils that cat jumps off the counter often and therefore, or maybe it was becoming aware of me on some psychic level, and that was why I became aware of it. You know, I think if we are sending so much information through Wi-Fi and radio waves and other frequencies, why would would we be so pompous and so sure that the people that claim they're sending frequencies with consciousness are charlatans? I, I mean, that's That's a little bit of an absurd way of doing things, of examining things. I would prefer to be more full, more honest. And yes, there's charlatans who pretend to see things, etc. It's so easy to pretend. But I I think we all have a good sense of who to trust and who not to trust. And yes, we can become confused about that. but, But the best way to do it is to do the exercises that that are taught by certain traditions, yoga, and tai chi, and qigong, and reiki, and ugh, the list is too long to even want to talk about. But they're all talking about the same thing, the energy force, the chi, the prana, the vital life force inside us all. All right? And it's inside everything, uh, conscious or con- Unconscious. There's, uh, you could call it spirit, like, you know, the frequency of frequency. And it's kind of in everything. Because everything is vibrational. Remember that. That's Science does not dispute that at all. I'm taking that from science. And so now I'll get a little more freaky, and, and I'll tell you, wh- while in meditation, uh, more than once, and it happened just before the trip for the first time, Uh, doing a a meditation exercise or a visualization or something like that, um, a mantra or something, I was tapped. Tapped by an energetic hand. It felt just like a hand, but no other humans were around able to tap me. And this happened while I was in the convention. And yes, humans were around to tap me, but everybody was, was in meditation. It wasn't another human that tapped me, unless they were being... I was being hoaxed, but I don't think so because the timing was acute with whatever my visualization or my experience was. There was actually a time where I had where I tapped, uh, I was tapped, I, I actually had to leave the convention early because it was going on too long, and I was afraid of missing a flight. I get so anxious about the controls and the securities and the timings of airports and catching flights. And it's sad that I do, and it's embarrassing that I do, but oh well. But I got tapped while in meditation on my leg, like, hey, you got to go. And then I realized I was 15 minutes late and I still had to pack. And then I got down to the uh, concierge to order a taxi and and report that I had missed my bus, which I had bought the ticket for that morning. And she said, the bus hasn't come yet. The taxis aren't coming. Everything is on lockdown because there's an accident on the only road from the city to us. And it's a really bad accident. There was a helicopter, etc. So I was tapped for a moment of panic. and, and, And I also realized something about myself, is that I am susceptible to fear and I am susceptible to panic and yet they are just illusions because my good friends Stefan and Justin, they kept assuring me that there was no, there was not going to be an issue and, and I thanked them because I was absorbing like, hey, you're being foolish, you're succumbing to fear and as I kind of gave up my fear gave it up. I was like this is exhausting. Let's give this fear up. Boom, a taxi <coughs> a taxi cab just appears on the driveway. No one's waiting for it. I go to the taxi first. I'm speaking Italian. I'm one of the few people around that could speak Italian. And a French Canadian woman asked me if we if if she could share the taxi with me and if we could wait for her friend because she's even later for her flight than I am. And I said, "Sure." Let's do this. So now I had to pay only 10 euro rather than 30. And I was about to depart in about three minutes rather than 40. And uh, I was told by the concierge that the road out is clear. It's the road in that's completely shut down. So this taxi must have just made it just before or just after the accident. It basically got just got through. And uh, I was there to scoop it just right in time. So it's interesting how those things go, but there's more freakiness. Um, I got to see on two of the presenters, uh, their auras. One was a tall, slender woman, and her aura was three feet taller than herself. Now, I've seen, uh, I should go back, I've seen auras a couple times before, Um, maybe about 10 times before. And usually it's only around the shoulders and the head and usually on, only about six to ten inches. I, I, there were a few people I saw their auras about one foot to sixteen inches off of their shoulders and head, but two of these presenters in the field of meditation and atonement and well-being, um, one, her, her aura was three feet taller than her and all around her body at about a f- two foot distance. And uh, the interesting part about that aura is that when she got nervous at the beginning of her lecture and her, her speaking pace increased, etc., and her aura actually shrank about six inches. And then she like, relaxed into her lecture because she got over that initial anxiety of public speaking and, and, and her aura grew back and her, and her speaking pace also slowed back to a more natural pace. So that was pretty amazing to see. Um, and then the guy after her uh, was short and stout. His aura was three feet uh, wider than him. Now, he wasn't, his aura didn't go as tall as him. His aura expanded outwards. So one aura was going up and one aura was going out. And that was interesting for me to see. And I was feeling other frequencies in the ancient city of Rome, just little tingles here and there. I can report that uh, um, when I touch certain minerals, I could feel frequencies of them, just as slight tingles, just like if an electrician was to hold on to uh, or put their hand on a uh, transformer. You'd feel a hum, a frequency of the electricity passing through the magnets. Magnets. Now you're feeling electromagnetism. And electromagnetism is pretty much everywhere in m- even minuscule, indetectable uh, waveforms. So so y- you can feel that from minerals. And one of, the m- one, of the, one of the rocks called Shungite, you can only get it from Russia, Shungite. Um, apparently it's got every element in the periodic tale, uh, table within it. And I feel a lightness when I hold it, a light tingle when I hold it, and it's supposed to be good for purification and cleansing, and it does great things for bees and for water and for. Um, so the world should become maybe aware of that. Um, but because it has all the frequent all the elements of the periodic table, and because it has. Um, this light feeling. Uh, Maybe it's a molecule black hole kind of thing. I don't know. There might be some sort of vacuum there, even disproportionate so that the material can, can exist, but it still is drawing things to it. I don't know. But that's an interesting idea. And so the last freaky thing I have to say is I came back to the marsh where I live. And where I live was a thousand-year-old kind of Iroquois, you know, the predecessors to the Iroquois um, tribes And there was a big longhouse here. And if you go up to the hill where the longhouse was, you could see all, you could see for miles. Because we're in a marsh that attaches to the bay of a big water lake. And we're on the outskirts on the hill, so you could see like a whole m- kind of hunter-gatherer metropolis would have would have existed all around the lake and the marsh. And you could see the fire and the smoke from one longhouse to another one across the marsh or across the bay. And that's where my imagination goes when I know about the this. History, the longhouse they found on that road, and I go up there and I, and I just meditate, and that's what I see. But now, uh, two days after coming home, I'm walking through our field at night with my wife, and I'm seeing human energies. I'm seeing like those energy fossils, like ghosts. They don't, they're not moving, and they don't appear to have consciousness. They don't want to tell me anything. There's not nothing going on, except for I see a format of kind of translucent light. And I s- jokingly said to Rocio, um, my, my wife and my partner, I said, um, honey, um, I'm seeing ghosts. <laughs> and she said, oh my God. I said, please let me walk around this one. And she wouldn't let me walk around because she really w- didn't want to believe me. She was so afraid. So she pus- pushed me to walk through the ghost. And that kind of sucked, but I did, I did uh, kind of do this moment mentally first. Like, yeah, I'm gonna walk through you, but that's just an illusion. And I acknowledge you, and I respect you, whatever you are. And uh, I respect myself much more because within me there's an anima- animation. Within me there's consciousness. So my, my ghost, my. Soul would be would be much more powerful. Would is in the image of God, is a God is in the image of God, which is the difference. Um, so. So I walked through about two or three ghosts because my wife would not let me sidestep them. Um, she was. Uh, she was afraid. Of my reports, but. I jokingly said, you know, I've been, we've been walking through them for over 10 years and they never hurt us, so nothing to be afraid of. But it was interesting that I'm able to perceive new things now. And I think that there were a couple of initiations with me understanding these things about the masses and about the self. I think those initiations were eternal, internal. Internal realizations. And I think the energy of the ancient city and the energy of the crowd of 2,400 people, 2,200 people. I think that was really cool. Anyways, I just want to again reiterate that we all can be all that we can be. This is this is not a bragging situation this is a report of one human's experience and the report is to say that you too can experience life in a similar way in your own way and and there's so many things that our cultures and our societies and our religions teach us we need to do things we're taught to believe that that we maybe shouldn't believe. This planet um, provides for us. And some of the things we're doing because of societal standards like driving SUVs and plastic, 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 we're ruining our world. And we don't need those things because the world gave us everything we do need already. It's there for the taking free of charge. And so, you know, I'm not saying we give up all the infrastructures. Uh, I like airplanes, right? I like being able to get to another part of the world quickly. But I'd be willing to boat it if we had to. And uh, (laughs) stuff like that, I don't know. freedom, fraternity, and equality. And if we're, there's only 5% of the people thinking for themselves, I think that the theory is if we got about 15% of the people thinking for themselves and not being misled by the virtual reality of society, media, existence, etc., if everybody tuned into themselves, tuned into nature, into their own spirituality. If we had about 15%, then the ones that aren't really ready to think on their own would, would then just follow the example. It would kind of move the masses. So, so back in the day, I was uh, I was a bit of a wankster, I'll call it. wanted to be a gangster. Wankster. Although I did hang around with some real gangsters and stuff like that, and to this day, I I find myself sharing, breaking bread with with gangsters now and then. I I just have one of those adventurous lifestyles, I guess. And I get along with them, because I'm not judging them, and I'm playing by their kind of culture of respect, but... (sighs) I ended up going to a priest, a Catholic priest no less, who gave me good advice no less. So the Catholic Church is not all bad. Let's make that clear too. And I went to a Catholic priest and I said to him, I confessed to him about some of the things that I had done that I wasn't proud of. And he said, Well, you know, you've made some mistakes. But I want you to be aware of something beware of the beast. The crowd is the beast. That's what he said to me in in his chambers. It was an informal confession because I told him up front I was Anglican. But he still saw me. He knew I was from the neighborhood. And and I was going to him. And I said, listen, like... uh, I've basically been part of mob mentality. I've, I've, I've been in brawls, and I've been in lynches, and I've been in this, and I've been in that. And, uh, and I feel like I might have developed a bunch of bad karma, you know, bad way of thinking, bad reality, Reality's catching up with the frequency I'm in. And he said, beware of the beast. The crowd is the beast. One last thing, Bob Marley, uh, Hail Selassie. I, Prince Rastafari, he said a speech which Bob Marley then made into a song And Sinead O'Connor also ruined her career by um, singing that song and uh, and condemning the Catholic Church for human uh, atrocities. And you know, I have faith in the Catholic Church. I really do. Uh, I was taught to have faith. And I was against Sinead O'Connor, but Justin played the video, and I didn't realize that she was singing the song, War. And I'm going to just recite some of the lyrics I can remember right now, because it's a beautiful song. And uh, I'm not going to condemn the Catholic Church. I would say that the Catholic Church has has some things to apologize to the world for, and has some accountabilities to make right. But I think they can choose to do that, and I think, I hope they will, and redeem themselves. Because it's part of their religion is redemption, isn't it? Until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes, there will be war. And until that day, we will fight, we find it necessary, and we are confident in the victory of good over evil, of good over evil, of good over evil. I love the whole world. I love you all. And all we need is love. Densifying.